Now, as they were walking along and talking, suddenly a fiery chariot pulled by fiery horses appeared, and it went between Elijah and Elisha, separating them. And Elijah went up into the sky in a windstorm. While Elisha was watching, he was crying out, My father, my father, the chariot and horsemen of Israel. Then he could no longer see him. He grabbed his clothes, tore them in two, and he picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen off of him and went back to the shore of the Jordan River. Now, first thing I want to point out is this. Elijah was not, was not taken up in the horse and chariot. It literally says the horse and the chariot came between them and separated him, and he was taken up in the whirlwind. When I was a kid, my first Bible that I ever got, I think it was first grade, and they would mark everybody up on the stage of my church, and they pass up this Bible, and it was like this cream-colored Bible with a picture of Jesus holding a bunch of kids on the front cover. And you turn in so many pages, and there was a full-page living color, like really cool watercolor painting of some event in the Bible. And you flip it over, and there was another picture on the other side. And then you go like several hundred pages, and there was another one. Every once in a while, there was this double-sided pictures. I thought those pictures were so cool when I was a kid. And one of the pictures I really thought was so awesome, because I'm a boy, um, was that there's a scene of this horse, like on fire, pulling a chariot on fire, and it's like angled upwards. And Elijah's sitting in the chariot, riding it up in heaven. And I thought that picture was so cool. And then later as I got older, I saw some cartoons where they show that and other images, and I realized this is a very common theme. And I thought it was so cool. And then I took Hebrew, and I took Greek, and I studied the Bible, and I learned about the culture in the past, and I realized that it was blasphemy. <laughs> this picture... The one picture that I remember from my entire childhood that stayed with me the entire time was total blasphemy all along. Because the only person that rides the clouds in the chariot is Yahweh. To put anybody on the chariot is to claim that you're a god. And this is clearly seen throughout the entire Bible, if only artists would read. So, artistic license. Maybe there was a lightning bolt on that guy. Daniel chapter 7, verses 9 through 14 says, Behold, Daniel seeing a vision of heaven, he sees all these beasts, and he says, Behold, I saw one like the Son of Man approaching the Ancient of Days, and he was coming with the clouds. And he was ushered into the presence of Yahweh, and he put his hand out, and all power, all sovereignty, all glory, and all honor was given to him, and all the nations and all the kingdoms and everybody bowed down and worshipped him. And proclaimed him. What was so mind-blowing about this is there is no human who can get to heaven unless they're sinless. Or they're surrounded by angels. Or they have the blood of Christ. In Daniel's vision, there is no human who is sinless. And two, there are no angels that surround this guy. He walks up to the throne of God without angels. And three, the blood of Christ hadn't come yet. And so he sees a human, a man. Nobody has ever seen a human in heaven ever in their entire life. And he walks to the throne without angels, and he does not die in the glory of God, and he comes riding on the clouds, which is an image of God's. You always see God's on clouds, raw on the clouds. And then he gives out his hand, and God gives him literally everything. All throughout the Bible, 
Only God is said to have these things. Now, this blew the Jewish mind away. They didn't know what to do with this. So they do what every good person does when they're really confused and they don't want to say it's this because it's blasphemy, but they can't deny this because in the Bible, you just don't talk about it. And eventually what happens is that Jesus comes in one day in Matthew 26. And in Matthew 26, Caiaphas says, do you say you're the king of the Jews? And Jesus could have just said no, which would have been a lie, so he wouldn't have. Or he could have said yes, and that wouldn't have been anything wrong. There have been lots of kings of the Jews over the years. But he decided to really kind of stick it to Caiaphas and say, behold, you will see this son of man coming on the clouds, riding glory to judge you. He's literally referencing Daniel 7. I am that son of man. I am the cloud rider. And how do you know this is wrong? Because Caiaphas immediately responds by saying, blasphemy. He didn't claim to be king, he claimed to be God. Only God judges, only God rides the clouds. Now pagan gods ride the clouds too. But remember in the biblical Jewish mind, there's only one legitimate cloud rider. And then when he is taken up into the sky in the clouds at Matthew 28, the angels come and say he will return the same way. And then in Revelation, we're told that Jesus says, I am the one who comes in the clouds. That is an image of absolute divine sovereignty over all creation. Because the only thing that is above the clouds is the Elohim. And the Jewish mind, there's only one who is worthy of riding the clouds, and that is Yahweh. So Elijah is not on the chariot. It does not say he is here, nor could he ever, ever be allowed to do that. So get that image out of your mind if it's ever been there at any time. And it's like, we need to repaint that picture. What he's taken up is in the whirlwind. Now the whirlwind is all throughout the Bible called the storm or tornado. You've seen race cars go by really fast and they hit a patch of leaves. And what does it look like behind them? Just a whirlwind of leaves getting sucked into the back of it, right? In the back or the after draft, right? Is that what it's called? So, or an airplane, okay? And if you were standing on a, a, a tarmac as an airplane was taking off and you got sucked in that thing, it would throw you so far up in the air and landing. I mean, the, the, the amount of friction and um, turbulence that's being thrown off of that thing would just kick you across the entire airport. That's an airplane let alone God's chariot. You need to understand, this is not a good place to be. This is not a good place to be. It is clear that Elijah is being judged. First, he takes him outside the land. That is not good. He's moving eastward. That's not good. We know that he's dying because the first thing Elisha does is he tears his clothes and puts ashes on his head, and he begins to mourn, which is only what you do when people die. All throughout the Bible, the only time you ever see that is when people die, when David's daughter is raped, and when everybody is taken off into exile, and Jeremiah is left behind in the ashes. It's the only time you ever see that happening. But here's the other thing. The whirlwind and the storm are synonymous in the Bible. And every, 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 every single time you see the whirlwind or the storm, it is always judgment. God is showing up in one or two ways. He's coming in the whirlwind himself, and he's judging somebody. 
or he's describing the Assyrians or the Babylonians as a storm that he's sending. And what did they come for? To judge Israel and Judah for their sins. Now, I have put together a little selection of all these passages so you can clearly see this. Job chapter 30. You have become cruel to me. With the strength of your hand, you attack me. You pick me up in the wind and you make me ride on it. You toss me about in the storm. I know that you are bringing me to death, to the meeting place for all the living. Judgment. Job chapter 38. This is when God shows up at the very end of the book and he's really angry at Job. And it says, Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this who darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Get ready for a difficult task. A man, I will question you and you inform me. Judgment. And then Job responds by saying, I spoke once, but I don't dare speak a second time. Oh God, please help me. Psalm 11, verse 6. May Yahweh rain down burning coals and brimstone on the wicked, a whirlwind that they, what is what they deserve. Judgment. Psalm 50, verse 3, Our God approaches and not silent, consuming fire goes ahead of him. And all around him a storm rages. He summons the sky above as well as the earth so that it might judge his people. Judgment. Proverbs 1, verse 24, However, because I called, but you refused to listen, because I stretched out my hand, but no one paid attention, because you neglected all my advice and did not comply with my rebuke. So I myself will laugh when disaster strikes you. I will mock you when you dread, dread comes. When the dread comes like a whirlwind and the disaster, disaster strikes you, like a devastating storm, when distressing trouble comes on you. Judgment. Proverbs 10, verse 24, What the wicked fears will come on him, and what the righteous desires will be granted. When the storm passes through, the wicked are swept away, but the righteous are an everlasting foundation. Judgment. Isaiah 40, God brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers in this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. Judgment. Isaiah 66, See, Yahweh is coming with fire in his chariots are like a whirlwind. He will bring down his anger with fury, his rebuke with flames of fire. Judgment. As Jeremiah 4, look, he advances like the clouds, a chariot that comes like a whirlwind. His horses are swifter than eagles. Woe to us, we are ruined. Judgment. Jeremiah 22, verse 22, my judgment will carry off all your leaders like a storm wind. Your allies will go into captivity. Then you will certainly be disgraced and put to shame because of all the wickedness you have done. Judgment. Jeremiah 23. See, the storm of Yahweh will burst out in wrath, a whirlwind swirling down on the heads of the wicked. Judgment. Jeremiah 30. Just watch. The wrath of Yahweh will come like a storm, like a raging storm. It will rage down the heads of those who are wicked. Judgment. Ezekiel 30. For the day is near. The day of Yahweh is near. It will be a day of storm clouds. It will be a time of judgment for the nations. Judgment. Jonah 1.4, but Yahweh heard of a powerful wind on the sea, such a violent storm arose on the sea that the ship was starting to break up. Judgment. Nahum, verse chapter 1, verse 3, Yahweh is slow to anger, but great in power. Yahweh will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is a whirlwind in the storm. The clouds are the dust of his feet. Judgment. Zechariah chapter 7, verse 14, when I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says Yahweh Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations. Where they are strangers, the land is left behind. Them so desolate that no one traveled through it. Judgment. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, For you have not come to something that you cannot be touched, or to burning fire and darkness, a gloom and a whirlwind, and the blast of a trumpet, a voice uttering words such as those who have heard and begged to hear no more. Judgment. That was the giving of the law. And the only time that God wasn't really judging Israel is when he came down in fire and the whirlwind and storm on the mountain. But they were scared of their mind, and so they thought they were going to die. And he gave them the law, which only brings judgment. I show you all of these, and this is pretty much 90% of them, because I want to really make it clear, there are no exceptions. There are no exceptions. Every single time the whirlwind shows up, people are condemned or killed. If you put this all together, it is clear that Elijah is being judged. In the greater context, what happens to every king and every prophet who blatantly disobeys God? They die. Then he is moved eastward, out of the land. And then the whirlwind comes, which is always a symbol of judgment. And then Elisha responds by mourning it. And then the prophets are like, let me look for his body. And Elisha says, there's no point. You'll never find it. And given the fact, and here's the big clincher on it. What is the only way you can get to heaven? The blood of Jesus Christ, right? Are there any exceptions? If anybody told you that there was an exception in your church, what would you say? They're unbiblical. Would you hire them as your pastor? But yeah, Elijah went to heaven, right? That's what we teach all the time. Because you know what we do? One Sunday, we teach about Elijah going to heaven because some translator made an interpretation about him going to heaven, and we have no idea what whirlwind means because, God forbid, we actually read the prophets. And then a couple months later, we teach us this lesson on the New Testament, the epistles, and we talk only through Christ and the blood. But they're so distanced from each other because we just kind of hop around the Bible and get on our horse and ride wherever we want to go that we never made the connection of what we were actually teaching as blasphemy and heretical. If you teach that Elijah went to heaven, then it is actually possible to go to heaven without Christ. You are literally saying that it is possible to get into heaven without the blood of Jesus Christ because Elijah did it. And if whatever he did, maybe I can do it too. And there's an alternate path. And now none of us are willing to go there because what the Bible has clearly revealed over and over and over and over again that there is only one way to heaven. Yet, this is a one-time passage in the Bible. That's in the context of the Old Testament and an ancient culture that we don't live and breathe very well. My argument is that we've misunderstood this isolated, complicated cultural passage rather than let's change our theology on Jesus Christ and the cross to fit our preconceived ideas. He is being judged. And not only that, where did Moses die? Outside the promised land. And could they find his body? We were told that it was buried in a secret location. And the book of Jude then discusses the fact that the angel Michael took his body away and hid it somewhere. Elijah is following the Moses theme all the way into his death. And it's almost like God has the final word here and says, you wanted to be the other Moses, and you decided that you're going to control the narrative by going to Horeb, and I never told you to go there, and then you blatantly disobeyed my commands, then I will make you another Moses, and you will die outside the land just like Moses, and your body will be forever lost. If you put in the greater context of the Bible and whirlwind, the theology of Jesus and the cross, the context of what God does to all prophets, 
how Moses, Elijah was following the Moses theme, it all makes sense. So what happened to Elijah after he was taken away in the whirlwind? I don't know. What I do know is that every prophet who disobeys a direct command of God dies. However, it doesn't specifically say that Elijah died. And Elijah was taken away in a very unique way that God doesn't usually punish the prophets with. But what I also do know is that the whirlwind is always a form of judgment. And if you were caught up in a whirlwind, you would most likely die from the result of that whirlwind. Did he get caught up in the whirlwind and was killed in the whirlwind? I don't know. Was he thrown out of the whirlwind and tossed way out into the wilderness and lived out the rest of his life outside the land? Maybe, possibly, I don't know. But what I do know is that from this point on, Elijah never, ever, ever, ever is in the story anymore. He does not enter back into the promised land. He does not continue his ministry in any kind of a way. So either he died in the whirlwind as a judgment from God for disobeying a direct command of God, just like most of the prophets who died from disobeying a direct command of God, or the whirlwind casted him out and threw him way out into the wilderness, and he lived out the rest of his days. He lived out the rest of his days exiled outside the promised land, never allowed to come back and and continue his ministry with Israel, just like Moses, when he disobeyed a direct command from Yahweh. Now, since he is the new Moses, and there's so many parallels between him and Moses throughout his life, even all the way up to the point that he disobeys a direct command of Yahweh, and he goes outside the promised land, and he's taken away outside the promised land, it makes sense that if he's continuing the Moses theme in his life, that he might have survived the whirlwind, but lived out the rest of his days and died in the pro- outside the promised land in the wilderness, just like Moses. But either way, it is very clear that Elijah did not go to heaven, and Elijah was exiled out of the wilderness for a punishment, just like Moses, who disobeyed the direct command of God, was exiled outside the promised land for a punishment. And what this does then is, this understanding means that there's no loophole on, hey, that prophet can actually shake his fist at God and disobey and get away with it, so maybe I can too. And there is no loophole in getting into heaven either. And it fits the context of the culture and the Bible, the narrative, way better than the other view. This is judgment. Elijah is finally dealt with. And just like Moses' death was delayed and outside the land and his body was disappeared, so was Elijah's death delayed outside the land and his body was lost. And God is dealing with them. And Elisha knows that. And Elisha mourns and cries. Yet we know that Elisha is going to get a double inheritance. Is going to continue the ministry. And I may be wrong, but you've got to work really hard to prove that one wrong. The question is, yeah, but Elijah was standing next to Jesus at the transfiguration, right? So was Moses. And he was killed. Now, what point is God making? Well, even though Elijah sinned and disobeyed God, he's still a great prophet. I'm not trying to erase all the great things he did. Because even though Moses directly disobeyed God and he was killed, does not the Bible clearly call him the greatest prophet that has ever lived? So much so that he becomes the archetype for Jesus. 
who then goes over and way beyond anything Moses was. But Moses and Elijah represent two things. One, Elijah is considered one of the greatest prophets like Moses. He's the only one that fits the Moses theme other than Jesus. So, but Moses is also the lawgiver. And even Jesus says, just as the law and the prophets say, the law and the prophets. And so in some sense, Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. But Moses also kind of does a double duty because he's the beginning of all the prophets. And Elijah kind of is the end. Now, yes, we know there are many, many, many prophets that are yet to come, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Hosea and Ezekiel and all them, but he's the last of the narrative prophets, the last of the narrative prophets. And so in some ways they book in this Israel because once Elijah dies, then judgment starts coming. See, Elijah right now has not pronounced any judgment on Israel. But once Elijah and Elisha die, and Elisha remembers an extension of Elijah, so in some ways their ministry is the same, just like Joshua and Moses, because Joshua did what Moses should have done if he hadn't been killed. So once we get done with Elisha, all the prophets from this point on are going to judge Israel. Judge, 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 judge. So Moses is the beginning of Israel's life, and Elijah is the end of Israel's life, narrative-wise, and before judgment. And the land. So they book in the land, so to speak. Why are they placed there? They're both incredible, godly, prophetic, righteous figures of God. Yet they failed miserably to save and redeem Israel. And the whole point is that they're placed next to Jesus in his transfiguration. And the idea of what Jesus is saying is that he outshines these two great men. He is going to do what they could not do. And in some ways, he's honoring them by the fact that they're discussing things with them because they are brought into the divine counsel of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But notice it also says that they were talking about his exodus. Well, all through the context there, especially Luke, the exodus is his death and resurrection. And Moses failed to really bring an exodus to Israel because he did not bring them into the promised land. And he did not really redeem them because after him, all throughout his ministry, they sinned and rebelled and sinned and rebelled and they did it afterwards. Elijah failed to perform an exodus because he did not really redeem them. Nothing changed in Israel. And they continued to sin after this. In fact, it's going to get worse. They're going to become worse than the Canaanites after this. Even though they're great prophets, they're still the greatest men that have ever lived, and yet even they failed miserably to bring an exodus to Israel and redeem them. And here between them is the Son of God who's shining with the Shekinah glory and all the glory of Yahweh. And he has already done what they could not do. He has passed the test in the wilderness. He has not struck the gut rock in anger. He has not disobeyed God and done his own thing in the wilderness. And he stands tried and true, perfect and holy, and he's going to go to the cross and do what they could not do. He's going to outshine, surpass, and go beyond the greatest prophets that have ever lived. And that's what he's saying. That's what's being communicated here, is that the prophets were all pointing to him. And the two greatest prophets are here to say, that's the one. He's going to do what we could not do. 
And we're talking about his exodus. All throughout the Bible, God talks about Moses' exodus. And Jesus talks about Elijah's exodus. But now they're talking about Jesus' exodus. Because he's going to go over and beyond. And that's the point that he's making there. Now, there's many other things that are going on with Jesus, but with them two specifically, that's the point that's being communicated. Elisha is the new prophet. Verse 13, he picked up Elijah's cloak, which he had fallen off of him, and he went back and stood on the shore of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen off Elijah, hit the water with it, and said, Where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? And when he hit the water, it divided, and Elisha crossed over. So Elisha now shows that he has the authority that Elijah had. He is the new Joshua. And notice, though, he's entering the land like Joshua. He's going to do what Elijah could not do. He's entering the land. But notice he also said, My Lord, my Lord, the horse and chariot of Yahweh. That's the first time that phrase actually officially appears in the Bible. And the last time and the second time that it's going to appear is when Elisha is dying. So the horse and chariot of Yahweh is going to bookend Elisha's ministry. So he takes the cloak. Now there's a chiastic structure going on here. A chiastic structure is when you have a series of events where they lead up to a point and then they're duplicated again. And what you have here is these series of events. First, you have Elijah who demonstrates his authority and he brings fire down on the soldiers and kills them in chapter 1. Then Elijah judges a king by refusing him healing in chapter 1, Ahaziah, and falling down. Then Elijah in chapter 2 parts the Jordan River, leaving Israel. And then Elijah leaves his cloak of authority behind as the whirlwind comes and takes him away. Then Elijah is taken to heaven. That's the mirror point. So you have a series of events, and X is the center point. It won't be duplicated. And now all the events leading up to it And then the events leading away from it mirror each other. But the fact that they all lead to X means that X was the main point, the main focus. But what we're going to see now is that Elijah, Elisha, takes the cloak of authority. So he's taking it up. And the word to raise up, that Hebrew word in the tense of what's called the hiphel, that's just their tense in Hebrew, the only other time that you ever see this word to raise up is when Moses was told to raise up his staff to strike the Jordan River, and when Joshua was told to raise up the stones and pile them to commemorate the Jordan River crossing. Now Elisha is raising up his cloak to strike the Jordan River, just like Moses struck the Red Sea, and he's going to go lead the people of Israel, just like Joshua led the people of Israel. So then he parts the Jordan River, entering Israel, which is a good thing. So the next thing we expect to see is some kind of judgment or healing. Verse 19 of chapter 2. The men of the city said to Elisha, Look, this city has a good location as our master can see, but the water is bad and the land doesn't produce crops. Elisha said, Get me a new jar and put some salt in it. Now what city are they talking about? Jericho. Because they went from Gilgal to Bethel to Jericho to the Jordan River. Now Elisha is going to Jordan River to... Jericho to Bethel to Gilgal. That's the path he's going to take, the exact same path. So they get to Jericho. Now remember, Jericho is bad and evil because Jericho was destroyed by God. They offered it up as a first fruits offering to Yahweh in chapter 6. 
And Yahweh said, anybody who rebuilds the city is cursed. When we begin Ahab's, ministry, Ahab's kingship in chapter 16 of 1 Kings, it said, now Ahab had the city of Jericho rebuilt, and his son, the sons of Hiphel died, and that kind of stuff. That means Jericho's evil. It's cursed. It's bad. Why is the water bad and bitter and killing people? Because it's a judgment of God. Now, what did Elijah do most of his ministry? Elijah judged and condemned people. He very rarely actually operated with the people. He mostly dealt with kings, and he judged them and condemned them. But Elijah comes along, and he says, give me salt. Now, salt is symbolic of covenant. Salt was used when sprinkled in the covenant making of Moses. And so he says, give me salt, and he throws in the water. We all know that salt does not purify water. But because it's a symbol of the covenant of God, it does purify the water. So this is what Yahweh says, I have purified the water, it will no longer cause death or fail to produce crops, and the water has been pure to this very day, just as Elisha prophesied. What did Elisha just do? He lifts the curse of God off of Jericho, which means from this point on, it's okay to live in Jericho. It's okay to build Jericho bigger, because he lifted the curse. And what God is saying is, I've been judging you and judging you and judging you and judging you for your sins. And like Elijah, I've carried, I'm going to carry you off into exile one day. But then, like Elisha, one day I will carry you back to the promised land, and I will lift the curses and the judgments. And when we get to the prophets, especially Isaiah chapter 40 and on, you're really going to see this theme of God reversing judgments. And all through the exile, what you're going to see is God judging, 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 and taking them out of the land into exile. But then he's going to promise in the prophets that I will return you moving westward back to the promised land and I will take away your judgment and I will take the punishment away because you have paid for your sins and I'll restore you and I'll bring a king and he'll conquer all the nations and he'll establish Jerusalem and people from all over the world will come into the city and I will make all the world flourish like the Garden of Eden. And he starts painting this picture of restoration. And so this is a symbol, this Elijah is a symbol foreshadowing their judgment and then going out of the land into exile. Where Elisha is mirroring the return to the promised land and grace and blessings coming. And not only will you see Elisha do twice the amount of miracles that Elijah does, and I mean literally twice, but you will also see that most of his miracles will be acts of grace or most of Elijah's miracles were acts of judgment. And what God is doing with Elijah and Elisha is foreshadowing the exile and the return and what it will be like. So that when Elisha dies, then the prophets will literally and verbally say what Elijah and Elisha's ministry metaphorically demonstrated. And that's what we see here. So Jericho's cursings are lifted. Verse 23. He went up from there to Bethel, and as he was traveling up the road, some young boys came out of the city. We already talked about this. The word young boys here is not young boys. Don't think like little kids. First, they come out at least 40 people and more. We're told that 40 of them are at least going to die. That means there could have been more. There's no way that that many boys would be allowed out of the city all by themselves. There's no way that a boy would be allowed out of the city by themselves. That would be like taking you saying, 
Oh, yeah, sure, son. You can go with all the neighborhood kids down to 11th and 7th Avenue late at night, 3 o'clock in the morning, and just walk down the back alleys with your friends. I'm okay with that. No, but no parent, no parent in the right, good, healthy mind would ever say that. That's the equivalent of these boys coming out. So first, this is just culturally unheard of, that, and that this many parents would allow that. The word young boys doesn't actually mean young boys here. We talked about this with Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. We talked about this with Solomon. They already had kids when they were called boys. The point is that God is insulting them in their maturity. They're acting in a juvenile way. Like what grown men come out and mock people for being bald? Okay, yes, there are grown people who do that, but they're juvenile. It's juvenile behavior. So what you should really interpret this, if you really want to go like all message, God forbid me, on this, or God forgive me, on this, is if you want to translate this modern language, you should say, and there was a bunch of frat boys that were coming from the local fraternity, and they began to make fun of them. Go on up, you bald-headed man. Go on up, you bald-headed man. Elijah was the lord of the hair. Elisha is the opposite. Hair was a symbol of authority and respect in the ancient world. When you became a 30-year-old man, you would grow your beard out and you grow your hair out, and that, that, that showed you looked more like a man. And it showed respect and authority. And we saw this with David when he sent his messengers and ambassadors to the king Ammon. Ammon shaved off half their beards and sent them back, which is like, I'm, I'm, you're just boys to me. That's what he's saying. David, you sent me boys. You're a boy, David. And he said, that was an insult. So they're saying, hey, why should we respect you and, and your authority? You're not a man of God. You have no hair. Everybody of authority has hair. And they're mocking, which is dumb. And it's cruel. It's mean. And he's the prophet of God. Elisha called down a curse on them, and two female bears came out of the woods and ripped 42 of the boys to pieces. From there, he traveled to Mount Carmel. Now, female bears, the only time they really attack people is when they're protecting their cubs. And it's almost like God is saying, this is my child. This is my prophet. And if you question his authority, then just like Elijah called down fire, to kill the 50 guards, we now have bears coming out. Now the bears, the boys dying, connects you to the fire coming down on the soldiers. But the bears connect you to the two lions. The lion that killed the prophet for disobeying God and the lion that killed the man who disobeyed the prophet. And once again, this is reminding you, what does God do to people who disrespect his prophets or, blatantly dis- or prophets and kings who blatantly disobey him? He kills them which reinforces the death of Elijah, which reinforces the death of Elijah. So Elijah shows grace to the people by healing the water, but then he also judges them by killing the bears. And so in this way, the beginning of Elisha mirrors the very end of Elijah, except it's antithetical. Rather than cursing and judging people and moving out of the land, Elisha is now moving into the land and blessing people. But notice that who he's cursing now is not the people. He's cursing the false people of Bethel because these boys came out of Bethel. So most likely what it is is these are the, the sons of the prophet who do not respect Elisha's authority. And so what God is doing with this antithetical chiastic structure 
It's showing you Elisha truly has inherited the double portion of Elijah. He is continuing the authority and the ministry of Elijah. And this then begins the Elijah ministry. 